Inspiration means a lot of things to a lot of people. For some, it's the thrill of creative expression or motivation to accomplish something great. But in a biblical theological context, it has a very specific, very important meaning that God is the author of the Bible. But for liberal theologians, this doctrine, that the Bible is the reliable and sufficient source of God's revelation to man, poses a problem. If we can trust the Bible, then we can trust what Jesus says about sin, about judgment, and about his being the only way to salvation. But if Jesus isn't who he says he is in the Bible, as liberal and progressive Christians claim, how can we say anything about him at all? Politics, technology, identity, power, science, everything seems to be changing. So why not faith? This is Christianity and Liberalism, a podcast based on the book by Jay Gresham Machen. In this show, we'll be discussing a modern-day church in crisis and engaging with Machen's classic text to see what lessons we can learn and apply 100 years later. The line is drawn in the sand, Christ is gone and he's man Upon the rock of the word of God we will stand We bring the antithesis, the lamb's dripping wrist Is still the only answer for man's wickedness The line is drawn in the sand, Christ is gone and he's man Upon the rock of the word of God we will stand CNL with Machen we will tell Faith in Christ still the only way to be redeemed from hell We've talked a lot on this show about how the Christianity and liberalism controversy exposed a fundamental difference in how Christians read their Bibles. Machen and other conservative evangelicals like him looked to Christ, his apostles, and 2,000 years of church history for guidance on how to interpret God's Word. Liberal theologians, on the other hand, looked to new methods of post-enlightenment criticism to inform their interpretation of the canon. On the surface, these methods of interpretation, what scholars call hermeneutics, don't always appear dangerous. The supposed nuance and sophistication of the liberal approach can seem, well, nuanced and sophisticated. But as Machen points out in the chapter of Christianity and Liberalism that we'll be looking at today, their application can have catastrophic effects on a Christian's faith in Christ. I'll be talking today with Dr. Jarvis Williams. Jarvis is Associate Professor of New Testament Interpretation at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and the author of numerous articles, books, and commentaries. I began our conversation by asking Jarvis about when he first learned about Machen's Christianity and liberalism. So I grew up in a small town in eastern Kentucky, and it was a town where there, were, there, were, there was no competing worldview with Christianity. Everybody, even if people didn't believe, um, even if folks weren't Christians by profession of faith, they at least acknowledged that Jesus was God and and the Bible was authoritative. And I grew up in the 19, late 1970s, into the 80s and the 90s. And so there was, weren't a lot of ideological challenges to the Christian uh, worldview. Uh, but I wasn't a believer. 
and I gave my life to Christ in 1996. A, a good friend of mine died in a tragic car accident, and she was a Christian, and the Lord used her life uh, and her death um, to, to show me that I needed Jesus. And uh, make a long story short, the Lord used uh, her pastor and, and several people, teammates of mine, who shared the gospel with me, and I converted to Christ in 1996, my senior year of high school, and I began to go to a very conservative Southern Baptist church. And my my home pastor was uh, very conservative, preached the Bible. The Bible was authoritative, inspired and errant. Uh, those were the things that I that I was that I was tr- cut my spiritual teeth on. But around a year or so later, <clears throat> excuse me, I went to uh, I went to a a small for Catholic school for uh, athletic purposes. And I remember I was sitting in an Old Testament class and uh, the Old Testament professor said something that I thought was strange. He said, now, you know, there are stories in the Bible that uh, are not really true, but they're just stories that are there to teach a moral truth. And and the story he quoted was a a story of the, the famous story of David and Goliath. And he said that never really happened and so on and so forth. And I thought, I don't know, excuse me, exactly what that is, what he's saying, but it doesn't feel right. It goes against what I had had always been taught. So I began to think about those sorts of things um, about a year or so after my conversion uh, as a result of being in a school where um, I was being taught in a class things that I, w- I wasn't being taught in, in church. Well, fast forward a bit, I, I eventually began to sense the Lord calling me into gospel ministry, and I went to um, a, a Christian college, and then I eventually transferred to another Christian school, uh, Southern Southern Seminary, and finished out my undergraduate there, a degree there. And in that particular um, uh, school as a senior, uh, transferred in as a senior, I had a course called Worldview uh, and uh, Apologetics. And my professor was a great apologist for the faith, and he assigned to us uh, uh, Machen's uh, Christianity and Liberalism. And that was the only text for that class. And in addition to that text, he also brought into the classroom uh, people who were representatives of the very kinds of liberalism that, that Machen talked about. So, for example, we had a someone from a very liberal a congregation come in and went to a very famous divinity school. He was actually the pastor of that of that uh, Unitarian congregation. He came in and, and talked to us, and we began to ask him questions. And then he had a member from that congregation come in who was an agnostic, uh, and we began to ask him questions. And so, as I was reading this text by Machen, Liberalism and Christianity, I was I had the opportunity at the same time to actually engage with people who represented the kind of liberalism. Uh, that Machen was uh, sounding the alarm uh, about. And and that's when I began to, for the first time really in my life, understand that there are those who identify as as, uh, religious and try to show some kind of affinity with the Christian faith, who at the same time had a very different faith than the New Testament and the Bible articulates. And so his book, um, where he outlines the difference between liberalism and Christianity on salvation, the Bible, on uh, doctrine, God and man, and the church, 
And I began to think very seriously about the impact of these things and realize that these things weren't just distant um, ideological ideas that he was fighting against in the early part of the 1900s, but these were very much alive and well in, in the 1990s. In terms of how it impacts me as a scholar, you know, Machen, as you know, was a rigorous scholar. But one of the things his book has done for me as a New Testament scholar who is who has grown and matured quite a bit since those days when I first encountered Machen is I have grown to appreciate not only his ability as a scholar to think about technical things, but the precision with which he writes about them. And in fact, he says, doesn't he, early on in the book that he's he that, that he wants to present his case in a very sharp and clear and precise way. And that it's necessary to do that. And one of his criticisms is, is that there are those who would be in the sort of the liberal persuasion of things who, who don't want to precisely and clearly uh, fight their battles, so to speak. And so for me as a scholar who spends a great deal of my time thinking about, about technical things and New Testament studies, he's helped me understand the importance of speaking with clarity as best as I can trying to write with precision, but also, and, and, and just as important, taking the truths that we discern from the scriptural text to the streets, so to speak, that presenting it to um, a, a Christian audience that is as accessible as possible so that they too can be impacted by those truths. So that, so that if I'm writing, for example, a technical monograph on Maccabean modern traditions and Paul's theology of atonement, which which nobody reads except scholars and students, how can I talk about the death of Christ, which is a fruit of that labor, in an accessible way for believers to help them understand that they can believe with confidence in the sufficiency of Jesus' substitutionary atonement for their sins? So I think for me, Machen helped me at least in two ways. One, helped me understand the importance of 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 writing precisely about these truths that we love and believe in, and then taking them to the street, so to speak. Don't just writing in a very abstract, uh, erudite way that can't benefit and impact the church. Although his critics attempt to fault Machen for being combative and divisive, Christianity and liberalism has proven to be one of the most ecumenical books of his time influencing Christians across denominations and traditions, from Presbyterians like myself, to Anglicans, Lutherans, and Baptists like Jarvis. I asked him why he thought Machen's book has had such a broad impact. Yeah, perhaps there are many reasons. I think uh, a few would be one that, again, going back to what I said earlier, Machen writes with such clarity. Again, I'm, I'm just struck by that as a New Testament scholar, and as you know this as well as a New Testament scholar, that scholars can speak a vocabulary that only scholars know. And even if you talk about like New Testament scholars talking to systematic scholars, there's a it's like speaking different languages because those scholars have their own specialization, their own vocabulary. Um, and and for him, I think the ability to articulate with clarity and accessibility the the truths that he's outlining in his book is one reason why the book has a long shelf life. You can actually read it and understand it. You don't need a PhD in New Testament or theology to understand the truths that he's un, un, un developing and unpacking. I think also, too, his, his commitment to the 
authority of the inspired and inerrant word of God, that he keeps coming back to the biblical text. And of course, there's only one chapter in the book on, on the Bible, but really everything he's arguing in the book is rooted in, in scripture, uh, not in his own experience, although he's not opposed to experience, but he, he links that experience, roots that experience into the living and breathing word of God. And I think the fact that he keeps returning to the biblical text as his ultimate source of authority is another reason why it has a strong shelf life for those of us who who are longing to understand how to think about these truths from God's from God's word. I think I think perhaps a third reason is because the 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 battle he was fighting with respect to uh, modernity uh, or, or 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 liberalism, even though that was a a battle that was fresh in one sense and and was exploding throughout the academy in both the the, the universities the seminaries but it's also in, in the churches uh spilled over there the some of the ideas a lot of the, the ideas actually that he was pushing against aren't limited to the um the rise of modernity we still have today in this postmodern postmodern post-christian culture uh the language might be cloaked in um, more subjective and less scientific um, sort of arguments uh, against the faith. But the issues still that uh, remain that he was dealing with, so such as, for example, uh, what's the source of authority? Uh, in, the, in the 1900s, is it science, right? Is that the ultimate source of authority, naturalistic readings of text? Today, it's the self. You know, we're our authority. And so I think that the fact that the issues that he was dealing with, these issues aren't dead. You still have people questioning the authority of Scripture, people who want to uh, hold on to certain moral teachings of Jesus but reject the divine claims, people who who are fine with the golden rule kind of Jesus but they're not comfortable with the res resurrected and exalted Christ. They're fine with love your neighbor but not fine with the claims he makes about how we ought to live in terms of our uh, our sexuality or our, or our ethic. Uh, these issues are are very much relevant today. That that were part of the, the issues that he was dealing with. I think in the 1900s when he wrote. The conflict between the authority of ancient scripture and human autonomy has never felt so palpable as it does today. In fact, it's this tension that is at the very heart of so many of our culture wars. On the one hand, the Bible tells us a lot about what we can and can't say about God. And on the other, cultural influencers and bestsellers, sometimes even Christian ones, tell us that we ought to trust what we feel, even if it doesn't fit with God's Word. So which is it? Yeah, that's a good question. It seems to me that, if I understand Machen correctly, is, is he's not opposed to someone having an experience. For example, he he would he believed that we all need to have a personal conversion experience, that individuals need to repent of their sin, turn from their sin, trust in Christ, and believe in his substitutionary work for our sins and his physical bodily resurrection from the dead, that, that we must experience the risen Christ by faith, turning from our sin. But what but what he equally wants to make 
uh, clear is is that our experience must be rooted in the divine and inspired and inerrant word of God so that you can't claim to have an experience about Christ if you separate that Christ from it, from the historical facts or narratives. Uh, uh, you can't accept your uh, uh, you you can't separate your experience from the narrative account of what the New Testament actually says about about Jesus. So it seems to me for for him that a every single experience that we claim to have of Christ must be grounded and rooted and supported by what God has clearly clearly revealed about Christ in his word. Uh, Otherwise, the individual who claims to have an experience is ultimately his own authority. And if one is and if one removes the authority from the biblical text to oneself, then one can embrace all sorts of things about Christ that aren't rooted in the the biblical story. So I think that's that's some ways in which at least I understand what he's saying about experience. You have to have both the the the, the written re- revealed word of God and a personal encounter with what God has revealed in his word. It may come as a surprise, but the old 20th century fundamentalist J. Gresson Machen reserves some of his best prose to describe the Christian experience. Here are some clips from the audiobook. What then is the difference between liberalism and Christianity with regard to the person of our Lord? The answer might be difficult to set forth in detail, but the essential thing can be put almost in a word. Liberalism regards Jesus as the fairest flower of humanity. Christianity regards him as a supernatural person. The trouble is that the experience thus maintained is not Christian experience. Religious experience it may be, but Christian experience it certainly is not. For Christian experience depends absolutely upon an event. The key takeaway is that, according to Machen, the Christian's experience of our Savior will be most complete when we take him at his word. In order to do that, we have to read scripture as inspired, inerrant, and infallible, words Machen uses a lot in this chapter on the Bible. I asked Jarvis to help us understand some of these concepts. So yeah, the plenary inspiration, or, or as many also call it, verbal plenary inspiration, that all scripture is inspired by by God. Uh, All scripture is inerrant, is infallible, is authoritative, is sufficient for everything, for eternal life and and godliness. And it's not not only, this is, I think, a very important point uh, for Machen, that it's not only that the scriptures are without error when they comment on doctrine, uh, but when they about historical events, when they talk about geographical events, that that when they give accounts of the resurrection, for example, they are 100% uh, historically reliable and accurate. And and this is also an important point, I think, for Machen, that this is not dictation theory. Uh, He uses this word. They they were not, the, the biblical writers were not stenographers. 
It's not this mechanical theory whereby they're unconsciously just writing things as machines, but they their own personality of of their own personality comes through their understanding of culture, history, grammar. They are real people writing, but but the the inspirational process of what they write is a miracle. It is a supernatural miracle akin to what you find with the resurrection. Um, and, and, and so then because it's a supernatural event, God is doing something unique in the inspiration process. We can therefore be confident that they write exactly what God wants them to write, right down to the grammatical oddities you might find in Greek or in the Hebrew in the text. And I think he wanted to clarify this point because I think quite frankly, the, the the battle between Christian and liberalism was really a battle fought over, over the Bible in one sense, because the I know in my own denomination, I just speak with my own denomination here, I mean, this showed up in the, uh, the uh, movement known as the, the conservative resurgence, where you have um, certain, certain people arguing that uh, their own experience was equivalent to their experience of the spirit was equivalent to uh, the inspiration of the scriptures. And they would say things like the, the more moderates or theologically theological moderates or, or, or those who are, are more liberal would say things like um, they're insp they're inspired. Uh, and so they don't, they have the right to appeal to their experience and they're just as inspired as the scriptures Whereas the conservative resurgence was all about in the in, in the SPC about returning to the authority of the Bible. That's the source of authority. And so you ask, you know, what is what is this this whole thing about? It's ultimately, do you believe the Bible is inerrant or not? I think it's a, maybe a simplistic way at an academic level to say it, but I think it's a very very uh, a relevant way to describe what's going on there. And and for Machen. If if he would say, just to be uh, clear and careful here, that there are genuine believers who might not affirm uh, verbal plenary inspiration, uh, he, he acknowledges that has a has a quite helpful section on that in his book. Um, but but the point that one would want to ask is why would a genuine believer who believes in the miraculous and the supernatural not want to affirm? If they believe in the resurrection, for example, which is a, a miracle, why wouldn't they likewise want to affirm a miracle as it relates to the inspiration of Scripture? And so this verbal plenary inspiration conversation is important because you have those who are both who are professing faith in Christ on the one hand and those who are outside of Christianity on the other hand saying that the scriptures are not inerrant and guys like Machen. And then later in, in Chicago in the 1970s, if I remember my church history correctly, you have a group of scholars who are, who, who are evangelical and they, they range from, from Baptistic traditions, Presbyterians who gather together and they construct this document known as the Chicago statement of biblical inerrancy, where they're essentially trying to clarify because this battle was not over when 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 Machen after Machen published his book they wanted to clarify what it is to believe in biblical inerrancy and what what uh, what does biblical inerrancy mean and what does it not mean and you have these these uh, points of affirmation and you have these points of denial we affirm this about inspiration and inerrancy we deny this about inspiration and inerrancy 
And so the conversation is, in, in summary, is about, do you believe, I think, do you believe the Bible is God's inerrant and authoritative word or not? If you do not, there are massive implications for that in how you do church, how you preach the gospel, how you preach the Bible, where do you look for hope, so on and so forth. So I think I think all of these things are are wrapped up in the, the, the importance of this conver conversation. Yeah, it really gets at the heart of the Christian faith and the gospel. Machen recognizes that. And I think it's it's different than tertiary or secondary issues, right? Where we're debating different issues within the text that someone can hold to a different view on that matter. This is a sort of non-negotiable, this is a non-negotiable if you do not believe that God's word is what it is and we begin to give it its significance through our own experience or through science and reconciling our faith with modern discovery. So I think you're absolutely right. The stakes are indeed high. Um, yeah, if I may, I say please. something um, on on page seventy five. I'm looking at the the older edition. It, it just struck me again where he said, "It must." I'm quoting him here. It must be admitted that there are many Christians who do not accept the doctrine of plenary inspiration. And that's a helpful. That's helpful because even the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy says that as well. They recognize. That you're not justified by believing in biblical inerrancy. Yeah, uh, much like you're not justified by believing in the doctrine of justification by faith alone. <laughs> that's right. Because one of the criticisms I often hear about people like us who believe in biblical inerrancy is, is that we worship the Bible. Mm -hmm. That is not what we're saying. That's not what Machen was saying. He, he acknowledges, yeah, there, there are believers who 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 believe in Jesus, they love Jesus, they they have an incorrect view of scripture. But they they believe in 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 Christ, hmm. but but he goes on and, and talks about basically uh, at another level, it's troubling <laughs> that you profess to believe in Christ, yes. and yet you 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 question the um, the the perfection of the very word that tells you about Christ. Yes, so that's that's, that's helpful I think for us to think about because I want to recognize there are people who have profound faith, hmm. but. But I just want to ask myself, and yet who don't who who don't believe in inerrancy, but I just I just can't but but wonder why not mm -hmm. commit yourself to the doctrinal belief in the complete trustworthiness of Scripture when in fact you believe in the resurrection. Mm. I mean, what's more difficult to affirm? Yep, the resurrection or that God can inspire people <laughs> to write a perfect word and preserve that word throughout history so that we have trustworthy manuscripts that God mm -hmm. providentially is overseeing history in such mm -hmm. a way where he can give us his, his word, even though we have copies of, of these texts, uh, which is more difficult to believe. And to me, it seems reasonable to, to make the case, if God can raise his son from the dead, and he did, mm -hmm. then certainly we can believe then he kept his word with that error even though we know that there was a copying process and a transcriptional process and a yeah. scribal process that's complicated, but we can still trust God can do uh, what he's always done, which is give his people a reliable and accurate and perfect revelation that we can trust. Yes. Sorry for that sermon there. I just wanted to highlight that point and just talk about the, the, uh, the sort of the, the tension that one must reckon with if he, yeah, 
the one hand believes the resurrection, loves Jesus, and yet does not believe in the inerrant word of God as inerrant. I'm glad you mentioned it. I mean, it hits home for me. My my advisor was John Barclay at Durham, and Mm. he did Mm. not affirm inerrancy. Most British Mm. evangelicals uh, or British Christians don't affirm inerrancy. And yet you see them trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. They can articulate the gospel and claim to believe it and trust it with all of their being. Uh, And I had even friends in the PAC program who would they were believers, in my opinion, but they were the same people who said to me, do you really think that Samson killed a thousand Philistines with a single jawbone? Is that possible? And honestly, that question sent me into a week-long depression Mm. where all I could do is lay in my bed and my wife prayed over me. She Mm. sang hymns over me. She read Mm. scripture to me. And I just, during that time, would, would read books on inerrancy to see, do I actually believe this? And one book by Poitras, uh, Inerrancy and Worldview, uh, mm. really just rocked my world. And it was a section on intellectual suffering. You know, you asked the question, if you believe in the resurrection, why wouldn't you believe in inerrancy? Especially when you see these guys who seem to be so faithful. Um, and I, I wonder, this kind of leads into the next segment, I wonder if this is because of that condition of low visibility that we have going on, even in Machen's book. If you remember that phrase, uh, we've used it before on the show. Uh, It's liberals like to fight their intellectual battles by using words commonly accepted in Christianity, but they surreptitiously import new meaning into these words. Mm -hmm. So an example that Machen confronts is saying that God's word is divine But what they mean is entirely foreign to the Christian definition of that term. Liberals mean, quote, that it is the more divine because it is the more human. And that is full of errors, which Machen boldly calls out as pure deception. So one question that I thought we could talk about is, do you see this condition of low visibility in biblical studies today or in the broader church? And I think we kind of do see it with that term inerrancy yeah you know that's a good question um in my you know my church context you know i'm in very theologically conservative spaces in my church context i as you know i teach at the southern baptist theological seminary Um, i'm a pastor at a southern baptist church and so we we have a very clear doctrinal statement as it relates to um our church and also multiple clear doctoral statements as it relates to our institution. And, and we, we try to, as an institution and as a church speak with clarity about what it is we're saying, what we mean by these things um, and, and not give new meanings to old words. So when we talk about inerrancy, we, we want to uh, articulate it in such a way where it actually means something Uh, we don't, nuance it to the point where it no longer has any meaning we we are very clear about what that means um you know you asked an interesting question in 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 the uh in the broader evangelical context or excuse me in the broader religious context um yeah there are spaces where there are um terms that are used this is take one god's love uh phrases that are used which has which has a much 
broader meaning than what the New Testament, for example, would would seem to to, to say about God's love. There are those in in sort of the broader religious culture where they would say, even people who profess to know Jesus, they would say, because of God's God loves everybody, uh, love love wins in the end. So so there there is uh, there's a way out for everyone at the end. God's going to make all the wrongs right and um, and wrath is not what met, reflects God's love, but God's God's desire to save everybody. And so to me, that seems to be a, a definition of God's love that is not founded in the actual biblical text, because you have the, you know, take Romans, for example, Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us like this, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So there's the, there's the love of God revealed in the crucifixion of his son. And then Paul goes on in Romans 5, uh, verses 9 and 10, to talk about real salvific benefits we receive because of the crucifixion of his son, which, which he mentions there, justification by faith, uh, reconciliation with God, deliver, and deliverance from God's wrath. So God's love is revealed in the, cruci- in, in the shedding of blood and in the rescuing of sinners from 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 wrath, uh, eschatological wrath that God is going to pour out on the whole world when Jesus returns. And so then if we have a if we use a biblical word phrase, God's love, for example, but we sh- we make it so broad that it loses any of its meaning, uh, I think I think you're guilty of what Meiching is talking about. But if you're if you're defining precisely love as it is outlined in scripture, it's love is not simply it's not a touchy feely right in scripture. It is a it is an event that manifests itself by means of action, sacrificial action, in fact, to the point where God loved and the, and the Son loved, uh, where Jesus shed blood for for our sins. So I, I do think you see you see uh, this uh, point that he talks about in uh, in the broader church culture, but you also see it in the academic world as well, where people who are working in biblical studies will talk about God's love this way, for example. Um, We'll talk about it as God liberating creation uh, from all of of its enslavement to the cosmic forces of evil. Uh, And as they articulate it, that they, they, they seem to not emphasize the need for individual sinners to be likewise delivered from God's wrath by means of the crucifixion of the son through his substitutionary death for our sins and his resurrection from the dead. So I think I think what Machen was touching on then is still present now, both in the academy and in in uh, communities that profess to be Christian communities. In Christianity and Liberalism, Machen says, The impression is sometimes produced that the modern liberal substitutes for the authority of the Bible, the authority of Christ. He cannot accept, he says, what he regards as the perverse moral teaching of the Old Testament or the sophistical arguments of Paul. But he regards himself as being the true Christian because, rejecting the rest of the Bible, he depends upon Jesus alone. While this may sound pious, Machen emphasized that it is a mistake to emphasize Jesus at the expense of the Bible. Yeah, that's a great question. I think it relates to what we were saying earlier. 
that if we if if we choose a Jesus that is separated from the biblical text, we in essence as fallen human beings create Jesus into our very own image. So that Jesus, and you know this, in in certain scholarly traditions, Jesus looks a lot more like a modern day university professor than he does like the than he looks like the risen, uh, crucified and risen and exalted Jewish Messiah. Because you have, you have scholars who have created a Jesus into his own image. I think this is also so true at at the um, at the uh, lay level where culturally you have uh, different communities throughout our history who've created a Jesus into their own image because of their own personal experience. And so I think the, the, again, it goes back to the issue of everything I know about Jesus. I know it fundamentally from reading the Bible. And of course there are other ancient texts that comment on Jesus and these sorts of things. But my point is, is that, is that the Jesus that the new Testament presents is is a Jesus who is 100% God, 100% man. He he lived and breathed and 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 in a real uh, second temple world. He he raised the dead. He healed the sick. And, and and if a person prefers a Jesus who doesn't do those things, then he is preferring a Jesus whom he creates in his own image and who's who is whose whose Jesus is is meeting the criteria established by perhaps scholars or uh, by the people in the community in which he might find himself who has likewise believed in a Jesus that is contrary to the one you find in the New Testament. So if we if we want to uh, honor the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his fullness, we must take seriously what the New Testament says about him, what the Bible says about him. And, and, we, and we, we must also, if we take a canonical reading of Scripture seriously, recognize that, that on the one hand, although yes, we want to understand the Old Testament on its own terms and in its, in its historical context, but on the other hand, the, the Old Testament scriptures are pointing us to that moment in the fullness of time when Jesus would come and die for our sins and, and be risen from the dead. And, and Jesus, Paul says, is the seed of Abraham. And he's the, he's the Romans 1. He's, the, uh, he's the, uh, the, the seed of David. And, and so we, we have to consider the claims of what the Bible says with the utmost um, seriousness because without the biblical text, we can't really know anything about uh, what it means to have a saving relationship with God through Christ. We need a Jesus who saves us from God's wrath, who, who yes, who, who gives us an example, right? But we also need a Jesus who delivers us from our sin problem, because as Machen points out, he emphasizes that we can't forget that we are sinful humanity and God is a transcendent God. And God himself intervenes in history, in his son, Jesus, in the incarnation. And Jesus reconciles that broken path between God and man through his work on the cross. And we have to accept all of what the Bible says, and especially all that the Bible says about Christ himself. Many thanks to my guest, Dr. Jarvis Williams. 
Join me next time for my conversation with theologian G.K. Beale for part two of our exploration of Machen's chapter on the Bible. This episode of Christianity and Liberalism was brought to you by Westminster Seminary Press. WSP has published a brand new edition of the book this show is based on, Christianity and Liberalism by J. Gressa Machen. This 100th anniversary edition features a new foreword by Kevin DeYoung and is available to order now at wtsbooks.com. Listeners to this podcast can get a free download of the Christianity and Liberalism audiobook at checkout when you enter the promo code MACHEN23. That's M-A-C-H-E-N 23. This podcast was hosted by David Brionis. The episode was produced by Josh Curry and Jimmy Atkins. Audio captured by Rudolph Gallegos. Edited and engineered by Paul Quorum. Our theme song was written by Timothy Brindle and produced by Nobody Special. Thanks for listening. To demonstrate the two completely different religions Liberalism denies man's wicked condition And divine inspiration with which scripture was written Us Christians are convinced scripture's truly factual But liberalism denies the supernatural Matron's book definitely showed Christianity and liberalism are diametrically opposed It's not a different version of Christianity It has opposite views of God and humanity Often disguised with Christian terminology They baptize the serpents absurd philosophy. So when we call you a liberal, it's not just political But rejecting his virgin birth and all of his miracles From trusting in science But against God, it's disgusting Defiance, self is your trust and reliance The line is drawn in the sand Christ is God and he's man Upon the rock of the word of God we will stand We bring the antithesis The lamb's dripping wrists Is still the only answer for man's wickedness The line is drawn in the sand Christ is God and he's man Upon the rock of the word of God we will stand CNL with Machen we will tell Faith in Christ still the only way to be redeemed from hell Machen press men to be honest Don't call it Christian if it essentially is godless Christianity's based on events God accomplished Christ was sent to bring redemption he promised Not just an ethical leader, respectable teacher But God in the flesh, yes our blessed redeemer An affront to human pride You can only be saved by faith in Christ who was crucified Our greatest needs to be redeemed by the Son It's not what would Jesus do but what Jesus has done Since we're slaves to doubt pride and lust we're in desperate need of rescue that's outside of us an understatement to say that we're flawed in need of what Machen called a creative act of God cause we're torn by sin we've been abhorring him not just sick but dead we must be born again God's enemies his arrogant opponents who can only be saved by vicarious atonement judgment fell on Christ in my place unrighteous guilty sinners are only righteous by grace scriptures historical acts they assert in Jesus the God man the supernatural person we need new hearts he's the compassionate surgeon by his death and resurrection he's smashing the serpent the line is drawn in the sand christ is gone and he's man upon the rock of the word of god we will stand 
we bring the antithesis The lamb's dripping wrist is still the only answer for man's wickedness The line is drawn in the sand, Christ is God and he's man Upon the rock of the word of God we will stand CNL with Machen we will tell Faith in Christ still the only way to be redeemed from hell My intention is to show and I'll mention in this flow Machen's words are as useful as a century ago uh -huh. Liberalism breeds destruction, it's hopeless Today it's deconstruction and wokeness Rooted in paganism, atheism like Satan's mission to make CRT state religion These abominations we see to this day in denominations like the PC USA Why embrace Machen's great wisdom in light of the claims of his racism? In 1913 Machen wrote mom complaining Angry about Princeton's campus integration I can't believe the decision of Warfield But this cancer of heart I'm sure the Lord healed See Warfield became Machen's mentor An instrument for Machen to repent more Showing his need of the Savior to change him But consider the Lord's grace of sanctification Machen became friends with an African-American named Charlie Machen gladly had cherished him As a matter of fact, Charlie had a cataract Skin color didn't matter as Machen had his back Paid for the operation, stayed with him in the hospital Christ changing Machen, not an impossible obstacle From his love for his friend Charlie It's quite clear Christ was changing Machen partly Any bigotry left, it's not there any longer Perfected now in the presence of his father The line is drawn in the sand Christ is God and he's man Upon the rock of the word of God we will stand We bring the antithesis The lamb's dripping wrists is still the only the answer for man's wickedness The line is drawn in the sand Christ is God and he's man Upon the rock of the word of God we will stand CNL with Machen we will tell Faith in Christ still the only way to be redeemed from hell